Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening, Rod. I am, well, sunny today. I assume it's the same in Swansea. We had a bit of rain overnight. I, this, I often feel this is the most British podcast ever. That you've, so mandatory you talk about the weather before we start. But yeah, we had a bit of rain overnight. It's been okay today. Hey, we're both Brits. We've got to start somewhere, haven't you? And we always talk about the weather. I, it's become a tradition, hasn't it? It's those phrases that you start a thing with, they just become the thing. Yeah, how are you? How's the weather? They're the, t- they're the two key things you ask somebody, I think. If you leave us long enough, we'll start talking about queuing and tussing as well. <laughs> so it's episode 73, it's the 19th of June, and it's very sunny as we've just discussed. It is, and it hasn't been that long since we last recorded the podcast, so there hasn't been a huge amount of news in between, but we'll do the best we can to bring you your little slice of our corner of the tech world. Yeah, I think that's fair, and we keep it quite light and airy this week, and hopefully by next week maybe we'll have some Vision OS SDKs to talk about, which is the software development kit. Or at least some new beta stuff in our, in our developer views. Yep, I think that's fair. Fair enough. Straight in a follow-up, I want to make an apology for all the dog noises that made it onto the podcast last week. My dog, whose name is Mally, if anybody's particularly interested, I'll post a picture of Mally at some point, uh, probably on Mastodon, was obviously very upset at somebody outside and there was a fair bit of barking, so I could hear it when I listened back to the podcast, so I presume listeners could too, so sorry about that. I think that's right, it's bringing a bit of your home life into the podcast. Mally just wants to be featured. It's a bit, some children are the same, they like to be the star. They do. The second bit of follow-up is, if we sounded a bit exasperated at the start of last week's show, we had a go at recording things other than Zoom, specifically FaceTime. How did it go, Chris? Very badly. It was my idea. I really wanted to use FaceTime because I want to get rid of Zoom, and it's because it's another app to update, and I thought, oh, if we use FaceTime, I really like the interface because it was great seeing you. You're all big, and I haven't, I haven't got such a big picture of myself because in Zoom, I, I don't use Zoom that much. There's a big, we're 50-50 in my app, and I thought, great, we use a system app, but for whatever reason, it just didn't work. The recording was very muted at my end. I'd had no comfort in it, and I, I think we were both concerned that it just wasn't going to work, so we came off FaceTime, but maybe we'll try it later on in the beta cycle with the new Mac OSs. There was you were getting odd feedback as much as I recall, weren't you? I'd, I'd I'd be speaking and then there'd be like an echo after. Yeah, after you spoke, there was a weird little noise which I don't know was being recorded, but I could hear and it's quite actually off putting. So again, I just don't think we had enough faith in in the setup to do it. But it's odd because it should just be audio coming through both ends, but it just didn't seem to be working that way. It's a bit disappointing, and I know not many podcasters actually use FaceTime to record their podcast most of them use zoom previous to that they used skype you don't hear many other products actually being used for this kind of thing so that's that's quite interesting in and of itself yeah maybe they've done all this testing for us and we should just go with with what they're doing well i'm happy to sort of give it a go every now and then let's face it we had to cast around a while to find a document editing format that we could collaboratively use so maybe there is something better out there i'm okay with zoom i know you'd rather we use teams maybe but facetime's not a bad shit no i don't use teams i spend all day in teams but it, it was just more that i just didn't want another app to maintain that, that was all but it's fine fair enough i should be like you and make zoom my app of the week actually well, we do use it every week to be fair i i use it every day Oh, yeah, you use it every day, I guess. I do not. I use it once a week to speak to you. Fair enough. We've got some other feedback on standby. Yeah, so just before the show, I did get standby working, which I haven't used yet. So standby is coming in iOS 17, and it's for those of you that may put your phone on charge whilst it's horizontally stood up, in essence, so it's across. And it's like a simplified UI, so you can have the clock, the temperature, your stocks. And I just had a quick go on it, and I thought it was rubbish. It was not very intuitive to use. 
didn't really like it and I was a bit disappointed. So maybe they make it a bit more intuitive or give a splash screen when they release it. But I just found it a bit weird. But I can see why people would like it if you're going to bed and you put your phone on the side. I would like it if it did it lying down because my phone lies down by my bed. And it would be nice to have a simpler screen with the clock on it in a nice, friendly, you know, colour or something. I don't see any notifications, but just found it a bit odd, if I'm honest. Yeah, I don't mind it. I think I was expecting it to be fairly similar to what happens with the Apple Watch. So if you know if you put your Apple Watch on the side and you put it up to charge, then you'll get a clock on it overnight that you can just... Well, you can. it's always on and most Apple Watches are... You can set it to dim out as well. Well, Apple Watches with screens that are always on anyway. And it's okay if, you, you know, if you're taking your watch off your, your phone anywhere, you can see the time. For the, for the phone, obviously I don't have an always-on display, so I've got to tap the phone to see the standby mode, or I talked about last week of putting it on the charger in my van. And it was all right. You know, I got a big calendar on one side and I got a big clock on the other and it went red because it was dark and that's what my watch does as well. So it's sort of trying to protect your vision, kind of when you're sleeping and you could swipe between a couple of screens but it was very average and you and I were talking about this before the show and it'd be quite nice if other developers can plug into that to actually show something you want to see yeah I just I don't know I was a bit disappointed with it I I don't know and why does your phone have to be stood up because it's a lot easier to stand up your watch it's got a strap on it it naturally stands but phones naturally lie down I just think it's going to have a low adoption rate and most people won't even know it's there well, this is a prototype for the home hub with the screen, isn't it? Yeah, you'd, you'd have thought so. This is your iPad come home pod come FaceTime thing that they're going to do. So Google have YouTube sort of built into their home hub in the kitchen speaker with a screen kind of thing. Do you think we'll have Apple TV Plus built into ours? Makes sense when it's free. Why wouldn't they do that? But how many people would use it? I don't know. Yeah, fair. Moving on, another little bit of follow-up. For me, I've got two things to talk about with the beta. One of which is multiple timers are awesome. I never use timers that much. Is that just me? I, I can't cook without multiple timers. Just look at it. <laughs> well, you know, if you've got, for example, yesterday I was doing the Sunday roast. I had the roast potatoes. I had a bit of mash. I had various bits of veg. I had the beef. I had a time I wanted to bring the beef out so I could rest it before I went to, you know, to carve it. All those timers are really helpful for when you sort of try and precisely calculate what goes where. I think the watch has supported multiple timers for ages, but I was just delighted to have it on my phone. Yeah, no, it's fair enough. And they should have done this years ago. So it's been disappointing how slow it's taken them to get to this low-hanging fruit. A bit like calculator on the iPad. We still haven't got a calculator on the iPad. And here we are on iPadOS 17. And I, I don't think we had four versions of the iPadOS. So I think we jumped the first four because they used to have it the same parity as the iPhone OS. But how has it taken 15 years still not to have a basic calculator that they've got on all their other systems? So I'm not surprised it's taken Apple a while and I'm glad they've done it. But it's, it's just not something I use that often. Maybe when I use it, I'll have, have a moment like you. Truly, we live in a time of wonder. And the one thing that is annoying me a little bit in the beta, and it's the most annoying thing, I think, other than battery life. I have noticed my battery life has taken about 25% hit at least over the course of a day. I am having to top it up. Yeah, the battery's a killer. I'm off to London on Wednesday, and I will be taking my top-up battery with me and a charge cable. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm flying for the next couple of days and using trains and things, so I'm getting a bit nervous about straying too far from a socket or my battery. So other than the battery, the other thing that irritates me, and I bet you haven't even noticed this, is that in apps other than messages, if you go to edit a message, it hides most of the text that you want to edit. Yeah, I've not noticed that. Yeah, and I also think the keyboard wizardry to stop ducking annoying things happening 
only applies on messages app. I don't think it applies to other messaging things. I don't see it in, you know, Signal or Slack, for example, when I'm trying to edit messages, the message I'm trying to edit gets obscured by the actual key feature. It's, it's shoved down at the bottom of the screen. It doesn't pop back up when the keyboard comes up. And that sounds like Stage Manager last year on the iPad. It was equally a nightmare, but I don't use any of the messaging apps. So for me, it's not, not been a big issue. Teams has been okay, by the way. Okay, I try and edit a message. And then the second thing related to that is if you do, and I use the spacebar trick a lot to move the cursor around on my iPhone. So I can, if I've misspelled a word before I hit send, I can move the, hold down the spacebar on my iPhone keyboard and then move the insertion point back to exactly where I want to change it. It doesn't always move. Mm, maybe they've done too much. They promised too much. Well, the other thing does work. So this was a sort of really a notice feature of the beta. Back in the old days of iPhones, if you held on the actual text, you could only hold on the text where you wanted the insertion point to go and it would give you like a loop, a zoomed in view of the word with where you were trying to go. And they've expanded that loop area now to be more of a sort of big lozenge than a circle thing. It's really quite good. That's worked reliably every single time. But my muscle memory isn't there anymore. I use the key, I use the space, but space bar on the virtual keyboard to move the insertion point around. Yeah, I'm the same. It's amazing how you get used to it. Yeah. So a few little things there, none of which I don't think are the end of the world. If you go out of that particular message thread you're in and go back into it, you can edit the message. It's just a annoyance. Yeah, agreed. And it is beer one, so. I think on the whole, the beaters are fairly robust. There's a few little quirks, but unlike last year, I feel quite confident they're going to get it all sorted. It's a better beta than last year. It's a better beta than we've had in several years, actually. It's the most stable one I've installed on day one. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. It's very stable, but there's not a huge amount in it, which is also a good thing. We did say maybe this is the year to have less. For sure. Anything else for follow-up? Uh, no, I don't think so. Should we go straight to news? Straight into news. So this is part of our ongoing efforts to find other monitors than the Apple Studio display that Chris loves so much with its terrible camera. And we you know, we had feedback on that as well. Terrible camera with better firmware on it this week. Well, it helps. I don't know if it's the best thing in the world, but it definitely helps. I think they've improved it, but you're right. You can only go so far with software based upon the limited hardware. But I think it's definitely better. I do like this monitor because I just know it worked really well with my iPad and my MacBook. But looking at some of the other monitors coming out, I am interested in them because you could have multiple inputs and all of that other good stuff and have Ethernet built in. I've had to buy an adapter for this one and I want it to look tidy. Yeah, I get it. So we talked about the Dell one with a hideous forehead before, or was it a chin forehead? Because we made the joke forehead. about Yeah, we made the joke about the five head rather than the forehead. And this is Samsung's attempt at that, which we did talk about in passing. I think it was from EE. No, E. What was it? E3. That's what it was from. CES. Was it CES? CES, apologies, it was from CES. So this is the Samsung Smart Monitor M8, which comes in 32-inch and 27-inch flavors. It's got HDR10, so a little bit brighter. It's got USB-C. It's got AirPlay support. It's got a 4K resolution, 3840 by 2160, and 60Hz refresh rate. So not a million miles away from the screen you're looking at now, except it's 5K and not 4K. But price-wise, I think this is quite compelling. So, before we get to price, I think... The resolution would probably put me off because they do this in 32 or 27, but why would you buy the 32 inch just to stretch the same number of pixels? I don't understand that one. And equally, I've got an extra K in my 27 inch screen, so I've got a much higher resolution. But this one does cost twice as much, so I can completely understand why people would go for this screen. I think the specs actually look pretty good. It's a shame it doesn't do a better res, but actually a 4K screen, I'd, I'd take that. I think that's plenty good enough to work on these days. 
Well, modern Macs can drive two 4K screens, right? So you could have dual 4K screens if you wanted. Dual 32-inch 4K screens if you wanted for the same price as your one 5K. You could, well, yeah, you, or you could buy dual 27 inches, which is probably the one to get, and you'd have 250 quid spare. Yeah, you could go and buy a really fancy camera to stick on top of it. Yeah, there is that. I, I think these are what most people should buy. It's a great spec, and Samsung make good panels, good screens. So I would get my vote. Yeah, it's probably a Samsung panel you're looking at now, if not an LG one. Anyway, so I, you know, I don't think you can really go wrong. There is a bit of issue between the Max 4K and 5K. Fonts can look a little bit blurrier, full disclosure. Dwight Silverman, who is a journalist who used to work quite a lot with Steve Jobs and co., actually bought a 4K screen t- to replace his aging 5K iMac and is largely happy with connecting that to a screen this week following his, t- his, his toots on Mastodon. So I know it's it's good enough for many people. I think if you do want that sort of ultimate Apple quality and just it, the, it just works thing with an ecosystem, then the screen you've got is the right one. I don't think anybody in their right mind should buy the Pro Display XDR at this point. No, and I was surprised that didn't get a refresh, even just a minor refresh, like maybe a lower price point, maybe it's a bit cheaper to manufacture, maybe it does come with the same OS malarkey that mine's got, but they did nothing, which I thought was a bit odd. Yeah, definitely. So there we go. New screen, decent price. I think it's probably quite a compelling thing. If you're looking for a good quality 4K display to attach to your laptop or extend your Mac desktop, this is not a bad way to go. Agreed. And it's, yeah, the prices and the build, the build quality will be good. Yeah, it will be good. Samsung make good screens and, and good displays. So I think there's no issues with that. Agreed. What's next up? We've got an exploit, I see. We've got a nasty, particularly nasty exploit discovered by Microsoft, of all people. So Apple builds into their computers a piece of a feature called system integrity protection. It's a really low level in, down in the firmware of the Mac to stop ad hoc code being run. So the idea is you've got a a base system that is more or less unchangeable. So every time you load it, it goes back to a known fit state of the operating system and then your, all, all your applications run in user space above that. So the actual fundamentals of the operating system don't change. System integrity protection is what enables this to happen. I needed to disable system integrity protection in order to get the software we record the podcast to work, or at least one part of system integrity protection. It's a very scary and thorough process to do it. So when you advertise a feature like this, if an exploit comes along that can actually take advantage of the fact that you can get by this without that, then that's a really serious problem. Microsoft have found this one. It's called Migraine, and it can bypass macOS system integrity protection, lead to arbitrary code execution on that in a device. This is a bit scary. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's a little bit scary, and you know it's bad when it's got a good name. Any exploit that's got a good catchy name is not normally a good thing. So, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's supposed to be in there for a long time, because as they say in the article the system integrity protection first shipped in 2015 so it's what's that eight years ago now so it's a, a long while it's been in in there so not good yeah and the the really good news is the most more up-to-date versions of mac os don't have that so it was fixed in 13.4 uh, but, okay yeah but the fact that this could be bypassed at all is a bit of a worry and if microsoft are able to publish it now it makes you wonder how long have they actually known about this before actually making it available and if that's an old one what are current exploits like so it's always worth keeping an eye on what's going on in the security world you should always keep your mac up to date or your linux machine or your windows box or your phone i'd be a huge advocate of getting updates and patches on your devices maybe not beta ones as quickly as possible but things like this are always of interest to me no i completely agree i'm a big advocate of keeping everything up to date i'm guessing microsoft 
agreed with Apple they wouldn't release this until after 13.4 came out. Apple fixed it. But obviously 13.4 only shipped last month, I think, if memory serves. So it's very recent. And actually, I wonder how many active Macs can actually run 13.4 and how many have actually got it installed. Because people do hang on to their Macs for a long time. They really do. And whenever we hear other developers talking about how far back do they support apps on the App Store, you know, most of them will try for one, if not two versions behind. And if that's the sort of popular apps, maybe the more unpopular ones will be supporting many versions further back than that. So it's certainly something to keep in mind. Yeah, definitely. Moving on, there's a little story here about Elon Musk. Again, I keep saying Twitter is the, the, the gift that keeps on giving, and I don't think we're a million miles away with this. And Elon Musk is stiffing Google as sort of the headline, but what does that mean? So Musk has decided not to pay for making use of Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud Services. And you think, okay, fair enough, bring it in-house, run your own servers, all that kind of stuff. But what Google Cloud Services give you are services related to flight is fighting spam and potentially removing child sexual abuse material. So this could leave Twitter wide open to these kinds of things. There was a story in the press last week, I mentioned it in passing, about them not taking down copyright violations. It was slightly before Elon's time at the company, to be fair. But when they were getting a music copyright violation, then DMCA says you have to take that down as soon as the copyright owner notifies you, and they're not taking them down. So if you combine that with even more damaging material like this, this is a real problem for Twitter, I think. It's not good, is it? It isn't good. Not, not at all. If you think spam bots were a problem and racism is a problem, and, and not that Elon seems to have too much of a problem himself with these kinds of things, it's just free speech unless it's about him. Opening your platform up to these kinds of things and continuing a pattern of not paying your bills, you know, you get evicted from your offices and you don't pay your bills for your cloud providers. It seems like a real fast way to run the country, the company into the ground. Yeah, it feels like when they stop paying rent on their offices and things, doesn't it? It's just not a good look. Like, I'm amazed we've seen so little out of the Twitter piece because obviously they've got a new CEO now. You'd expect some good out of all the bad news we've had. Surely it must be doing something right, but it feels like not. I, I think they've just got so many normal people, journalists, influencers embedded on the platform who continue to use it, which must keep enough advertising money for them to keep turning it over. Because at some point, Elon has got very deep pockets, but he won't backroll it forever. He'll sell it off to somebody else. So this, it, maybe that's his plan. I don't know. Maybe it's some sort of stock share thing going on. I mean, I'm in idle speculation now, but it just seems like between them and Reddit, how to drive your community into the ground is a real sort of growth industry. Yeah, I've got a few bits on Reddit coming up. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get there. Have you got anything else to add to this story? I just want to see some good come out of Twitter, please. Because I do kind of miss it. I enjoy Mastodon, actually. It's very good for my tech bubble. But I quite liked Twitter because I had tech and a bit of Formula One and a bit of current affairs. Whereas now I've just got tech and I don't even bother with Twitter. Yeah, and that's pretty much where I'm at as well. I did log into my Twitter account just to sort of vaguely try and keep it for some of the followers and things like that. But I got there and I was like, this is just dreck. <laughs> There's nothing here I actually need to see. So I logged out again. I haven't touched Twitter at all. Yeah. Fair enough. Moving on. This is keeping in with our social media space and potential harm to children. The state of Texas, don't step on Texas, will apparently require parental consent for kids to make use of social media. This law, Texas social media law, takes effect on September the 1st. Teens will be losing online privileges in Texas, which this week became the third state to require parental consent for minors under 18 to access social media, joining Utah and Louisiana. I want this in our country, please. I think this sounds good to me. 
I'm dreading my son getting onto this stuff. It was funny actually the other day, he wanted to go onto eBay. And I said, well, you can go on eBay. You know, he's got Icon for Amazon and he's got Lego on there and some other websites he's into. And they were just websites he's been to, but he didn't understand. You could just type in the address board anything you wanted. And so I showed him that and he got onto eBay. But wait until he starts thinking about, oh, well, maybe I'll go onto WhatsApp like the other kids or I'll go onto Instagram or whatever they're doing. And he hasn't got to that point yet. But that, we're not far from that. So I would love this, that actually he can only sign up once I or his mum approves it. Yeah, I mean, I can see pros and cons to this kind of thing. Uh, pros, I think there is far too, it's far too easy for children to access and be accessed by predators looking at their own content, you know, accessing Twitter and seeing things they shouldn't see, all that kind of stuff. Or, so escalating. Or not knowing what they're getting into. They or that. Know. But but you're escalating the responsibility of that to two things. You're escalating it to the parents, and that's assuming the parents know what any of these social media platforms are. That's fair. I mean, I know roughly what they are, but I know very little about them. Uh, yeah, you know, I've, I think they should. I thought eighteen was a bit high, though. I must say, my my view would be maybe till sixteen. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what age you can join the army in America or get married, or I guess it varies from state to state. Maybe it's still thirteen in some states, so let's not go there. But that sort of varies from state to state. So obviously Texas is a state and Utah and Louisiana can do this kind of stuff. So that's, anyway, b- back to my thought about, you know, it's, it sort of puts it on the parents who need to understand it. The chances are the children are more technically sophisticated than the parents in many, it's going to be exactly the same as everywhere else in the world. You and I are outliers. Most parents don't understand the social media platforms. And even you've said you're a bit hazy on some of them. And my children do come along ones I've never heard of every five minutes as well. So, you know, that's, that's a thing. And then the second part of this is it puts a lot of responsibility on platform vendors to escalate all the various securities and permissions and, you know, who set, who, who can see what within the platform. And I think that leaves lots of potential gaps that, you know, if they're rushing to put something in place by September the 1st. How does that get managed between them? Is there a federated way of doing that? Does Twitter need to do one? Does Instagram need to do one? Does Meta do a separate, you know, Facebook do a separate one? Does Be Real do yet another one? Snapchat, if you think of all the various TikTok, all the various platforms within that, you're potentially going to your parents and going, Dad, authorize me, authorize me, authorize me. And at some point, you're just going to go, you know, as with Windows and as with Mac notification settings, yeah, whatever, go away, I agree, I agree. And I, I, I worry that might drop the vigilance that a parent might have as part of that. Mm, I think you raise a fair point. I think you raise a fair point, but surely it's got to be better with a parent approving it than a 13-year-old or 11-year-old just signing up for it. So I think there is a balance in here, but I do think going all the way up to 18 is perhaps even too far. I I would agree. Uh, The last thing is actually in the article as well about this is potentially violating First Amendment within the United States. Principles of limited government and individual responsibility. It could potentially also increase digital surveillance of kids or cut kids off from critical online safety resources, which could be especially harmful for minors living in abusive homes. So for the positives, and I do I do agree with you, there are positives. I see a few negatives in this as well. No, you're right. You're right. They are negatives there. So it's a tricky one, isn't it? I don't know what the I don't know what the right balance is, but I quite like the sound of it. We were only talking this weekend about a friend of ours, their child, their child who's the same age as mine, wants to sign up for a YouTube account and start putting videos online. And it's like, well, that's a whole another thing. You've got to educate your children on what they put online, what's acceptable, and you know what they're saying on it. And you know, you hear about people putting things on when they're younger, and then it comes back to haunt them when they're older. So it's a real tricky one we've got to manage because people, when they get their phones these days, you can do so much on your phone, and you can just 
you know, take a video, publish it straight to the world, and you may be doing it all innocently, but you know, it could have ramifications. I agree. And there's, there's, again, there's pros and cons to that situation. If we look at somebody we cite a lot on this show, Marcus Brownlee, he started when he was 14. Yeah, and that was in the back of my mind because let's look where he's come. You know, he's come a long way and he's very well respected. And obviously he started recording YouTube videos and doing reviews in the right way. Yeah, and you would hope. And again, I think this is just my attitude to coming out again is that there's more in the education of your children, of course, all the education in the world is going to stop, you know, a determined predator or, or, or you know, a, a particularly well-engineered attack on somebody. But I think as a society, we're failing to teach our children, our colleagues, other parents, our grandparents, in many ways, the best ways of using these platforms, what they're for, things to look out for. There's just an assumption people know what they're doing, and it's very easy to exploit the system in that sort of assumptive way. So it, it, it's just, it's a thought. It is a thought. It's interesting to see what they're doing, though, and actually will will this catch on anywhere else? I am going to put a link to Marcus Brownlee's first video in the in the show notes because it, it's quite interesting to go back and watch it and then watch one of his more recent ones. You know, he's got a whole studio and a crew now and his world is very different, but that's somebody that's been chipping away at it for 14 years and has, and has rightfully done very well out of it. Absolutely, I agree. He's... he's, he's He's really sort of at the forefront of influencers and, and reviewers and what the best of what YouTube could be. There's a lot of awful, I'll use the word for the second time in one podcast, dreck on YouTube as well. But, you know, where it shines, it can really shine. I think Marquez does a fantastic job. Yeah, very, like I say, very well respected. And I'll be honest, he's the guy I look out for, the reviews when they when they drop. Absolutely. Thoughtful. Moving on, just a little more, just touch on the game porting toolkit. I, unsurprisingly, I'm fascinated by the game porting toolkit. I, I keep watching various videos and reviews of what's going on with it. So I thought I'd actually post a link to the wiki article of how to do it. So if you have got an appropriate Apple Silicon Mac and you're installing the, you have installed the Sonoma Beta, you too can try to run the game porting toolkit on your Mac. There's a whole bunch of stuff you'll need to do with that, including potentially installing Homebrew, being fairly comfortable with the terminal. There's a bit more to it, wine things and downloading Steam and, and all the rest of it. But you can more or less copy and paste what's going on here, and you too could be running Diablo 4 by the end of this article. Right at the bottom, he lists the games that he's managed to get working, and quite nicely has laid them out in perfect playable runs or won't run. So his unplayable games is actually quite a short list for the ones they've tried so far. What surprises me about this list, if you scroll to the bottom of the game's compatibility list, is how many of them actually run perfectly on an Apple Silicon map. Yeah, this is this is quite impressive, isn't it? I was just looking at it now. I was looking for Command & Conquer Red Alert, if I'm honest. I feel like I want to go and try it. There's a lot in here that are in the green, aren't there? An awful lot in the green. And even I don't, LA Noir, for example, runs. So that's it's not the most modern game in the world, but it's reasonably graphically demanding. It's Grand Theft Auto in the 1940s. You solve a murder mystery. I played it back in the day. You know, if you're a Mac user who's desperate to try it out, you have that potential now. It really sort of opens up what's available to you as a Mac user. And watching some of Andrew Tsai, who do, sorry, Michael Tsai, who does a lot of these videos and how, how you run it, some of these are extremely impressive on fairly modest hardware. He's bought an M2, Apple Studio, Mac Studio Ultra, with the Ultra chip for the purposes of testing this. And many of the games run better on his M1 than they have on the M2 Ultra. I had heard about that, actually, that the M1 is better for this at the moment. Yeah, but I think this is fascinating, and that could be a good bit of, bit of follow-up for you, Chris, if you did want to go and try and get this up and running on your Mac and see if you can get Command & Conquer running. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I must confess, I'm a little interested to have a play with this. I, I mean, fair play. I mean, it's very well documented. It's got everything in there, and you, like you say, you can follow it along. And then they've got a list at the bottom of, of games that work. I do want to know, is this going to be the turning point where maybe the Mac doesn't get all the latest games, but it gets some games? Do you know what I mean? And, and we actually do change gears a little bit. Maybe this is what Apple needed to do. Yeah, I like John Syracuse's point on ATP last week about developers wouldn't bring games to the Mac because it was a small percentage of installed base of Macs that would actually want to play games who could actually run the games, who had a Mac sufficiently powerful enough with the rubbish graphics cards that we used to have inside of Macs to actually be able to run them. The bar is so much higher now with Apple Silicon and so many people have them that even the most modest MacBook Air is capable of running one of these games acceptably. So I'm with you. I hope this encourages people. They don't need to run at 120 frames per second at 4K. They just need to run good enough to give you a good experience you know 40 frames per second is more than good enough for most games you know it's any ap or something like that and the a lot of these games run even better than that so i think this is a great opportunity i completely agree i, I think it's good and it you know where are we going to be two years from now are we all going to be playing games on our macs or are we not that's the that's the big question isn't it we shall see anything else to add on games no no but maybe maybe if you remind me i'll try and try this out you need to write it at the top of the show notes for follow-up for next week. So moving on, and I found this fascinating. I was following Chance Miller, who is a journalist who runs 9to5Mac. I think he's actually one of the founders of 9to5Mac. A very prolific person on Mastodon is Chance. And he was talking about how great he had found Apple Music's social network. And I thought, what? Apple Music is a social network? I thought we gave up on that with Ping back in the day. But it's still there. You can actually still follow people on Apple Music. He put himself out there. He was able to link Follow Me on Apple Music, and you can do that. And you can, He's obviously got a bit of a liking for Coldplay, the amount of Coldplay stuff he puts on there. But this is terrific. You can actually go and you can follow people like James Thompson, Chance Miller, myself. If you go and look for me, you can find me on there as well. But that's where this falls down a bit. It is great to see what people are favoriting and liking and playlists they're making. But I don't find it very easy to go and find people on Apple Music that I want to follow. So it's a cool feature. I think Apple could do more without turning it back into a ping to actually make this a useful thing. Yeah, I think that's always been Apple's problem, isn't it? How to do a social network. And with the amount of Apple users there are, it's always amazed me that how badly they've struggled with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's It's not the greatest app. They could build more of this stuff in. I, they, they went through that, in, it was about three years ago, maybe four years ago, where they were trying to highlight you could follow bands and things like that as well, and that sort of fizzled out as well. So maybe this sort of under the surface, you know, just follow a few people you like, see the kinds of things that they like, find some new music, would be quite a good thing. Yeah, yeah. How, again, how has it taken this long to, to do these features? It's amazing, isn't it? They just don't do server stuff well, really, do they? No, and they're not great at keeping... They've got such a big estate, I guess, of everything. They're not great at keeping all the teams doing something every year. Whereas it does make you wonder how much autonomy they have. We were talking about it last week, like some of the built-in apps, like the calculator app, would probably have a calculator on the iPad now if it was an independent developer. But for some reason, Apple doesn't seem to have somebody just on each app, whereas that would be better in the indie space. So it is, is a bit of a worry. Yeah, for such a big company, you get the impression that the new shiny thing really takes away engineering resources. So Vision Pro has obviously sucked engineering resources out of quite a lot of the rest of the company. Yeah, and you can you can see why. There's a lot to port to it, and they need to port all the apps over and, all, you know, the whole OS, which I get. But they need to employ more people, surely. They've got all the money. 
but do you not have a team that stay behind and go right we're going to be the the files team or the notes team and we just constantly keep iterating year on year maybe notes a bad example because that's probably the one app that does get regular annual enhancements well system settings says it doesn't it you know we did system settings last year we're not going to touch it again for a while yeah that is shocking or terminal when's the last time we had an update to terminal tabs tabs and the change to Z shell away from bash that's been it oh yeah i can't remember when that was that was a while ago that was a while ago yeah graphing calculator i think that's still in there somewhere chris is shrugging yeah don't make me go and look i remember graphing calculator it's in the utilities folder (laughs) yeah there's some things in your utilities folder that might be interesting i think the chess game is still there even yes we still have the chess game there you go. While Chris is looking in his utilities folder and mystifica- mystification, I'll move on to yet another chapter in our story of governments really beginning to look at give Google, give Apple the side eye along with Google about their monopoly in app stores. This time it's Japan joining Korea and EU and others going, hey guys, you really need to allow alternative payment method- methods and potentially alternative app stores. Google obviously haven't got a leg to stand on when it comes to the alternative app stores. They've allowed that for a while. But a lot of attention on Apple around the world. Yeah, and surprisingly, nothing said. So I wonder what they're going to deal with. They've got to deal with this separately is where I'm going. So I think we just got to wait and see. Yeah, they must have a solution in mind. They're going to get so much attention for this. I just think very grudgingly when enough dominoes fall, they'll go, yeah, yeah, all right, there you go. You can do that. And I don't... And they'll probably just announce it quietly, not at their main developers conference. If it's not going to be a big tentpole thing and just something they're half-arsing, they're going to do it quietly. Yeah, I would have thought so. Although the response to the Dutch fines thing was basically just keep fining us, wasn't it? So maybe that's the approach they'll take. If anybody can afford their bills. They can, but even they haven't got an infinite amount of money. And let's face it, big regulators, you don't want to annoy too much. No, I agree with you on this. So I, I find it frustrating that, that they're doing this and they're not doing the right thing and you know doing what their moral compass should be telling them to do. Yep. You have put in a number of Reddit stories. Do you want to take us through these? So I wasn't going to go into all of them in infinite detail, but I was listening to some podcasts about it and I'm not a big Reddit user, never have been, but obviously I've been very aware of it. And every now and again, a search will, you know, will, will take me to Reddit for whatever reason. But I have always been amazed with the content that's on Reddit. So for me, I would explain Reddit as a bunch of forums on literally any topic you could ever think of. And there's moderators and there's obviously quite a big community. It is a website that just provides the framework. The company provides the the website, the forum, you know, the, the capability. And you need the community to put all the content on there. And they've got loads of content for whatever you may be interested in. We talked a bit about it last week. So the first link I've put in there was just, a, it's a link to a website that just tells you what's gone dark. So I, which which reddits have been taken offline as a sign of protest where the new management has taken over and at the moment three and a half thousand subreddits are still dark as they call it out of eight thousand eight hundred so reasonable number there not not quite half and it was well over half at one point at the height between the 12th of june and the 14th so a few have gone back online and then what i've included then is some links just around some of the other news articles that have gone up around it because reddit are trying to push back and make moderators turn them all back on and then equally 
Some are turning it back on and they're only putting up photos of this comedian, John Oliver, as part of them, them coming back on and only allowing people to post that. Or other ones are saying you can only write words that don't have a K in it or something and the moderator's all taking part. So it's, called, it's quite an amusing protest in a way because they're all doing it slightly differently in the different subreddits. But still the company, in Twitter-esque style, are just forging on, not making any concessions or listening to any feedback. And the big thing that we spoke about last week is where they're introducing the API f- fees that the developer of Apollo, which was the, one of the biggest apps that third party had made, just won't won't cease to work past the end of the month. So he's got about 11 days left. And there's a link there to the Daring Fireball, to the talk show where he has an interview. And it's a really good interview. would recommend listening. It's quite interesting because Reddit basically suggested that this developer is holding them to ransom and so he's then had to release all the all the conversations and some of the emails to prove that he wasn't because as he pointed out on this podcast it could really impact him getting a job in the future if people think you know he's going to go and work somewhere and then hold them to ransom and then the final link what was my final link was on the verge oh which is now some hackers have got involved so apparently reddit got hacked back in february and then the people that have hacked them want a sum of money, but also they want Reddit to go back on their API rules as part of the deal for them not leaking all the data over the internet. So it's been a real series of, of things here, but yet the CEO of Reddit is just forging on, which is unreal when they are a community-driven platform and they've just alienated the community, a bit like Twitter. And maybe, maybe they looked at Twitter and gone, you know what, the amount of losses Twitter suffered is acceptable to us. But it just seems bonkers to me, and I'm amazed they're doing exactly the same thing. The other thing that was released in the interview is the developer said he spoke to them earlier in the year, and they said, no, we're not doing any changes this year to our API. And then obviously April came, and then they got told, we are going to change our API, and you're going to have to pay for it. So it feels like they're making quite a lot of knee-jerk decisions to try and, I guess, drive up their, their share price. So when they do an IPO, they make a load more money. Yeah, it- it's very hard to look at this from the outside and see any sense in what Reddit's doing, really, as the CEO of Reddit particularly. I get the impression your average worker at Reddit isn't thinking the same thing at all. I mean, it was interesting, and we were talking about this last week, that the CEO had said to some of the employees, don't go outside wearing Reddit clothing in case you get abused in some way. And you think, so they recognize, they absolutely know what they're doing to this community. And I think the all the things you've outlined there with the pictures of John Oliver. My personal favourite is all the video watch sites that are actually showing videos of static, old-fashioned leave a TV on, you know, when it would go past the watershed or something like that, and you'd get static on your TV instead of it. I think that's amazing that they're going to, they're just posting video after video of static and pictures of John Oliver, you know, and gifts of John Oliver and all these other bits and pieces for the sort of better-known communities. The decision by Reddit to work their way down the moderator tree that if you don't reopen this we'll go to the next one and the next one and the next one until we'll find someone that will reopen this thread and this subreddit it's just an amazing abuse of power really I mean they feel they own all of the data on Reddit which I suppose they do if you read the terms and conditions they almost certainly do but it's just destroying a community and or actually a whole sequence of communities seems to be the thing and, you know, we'll, we'll probably look back at this in six months and go, do you remember that Reddit thing? Or, you know, it's not what it what it, what it was, you know, a year ago, two years ago. So it's it's fantastic. And as for the story about the hack, the hack of people who want to extort money out of you, but also leave it the way that it was, roll back on your API changes, just shows the feeling even in, in you know, in black hat, black hat hacker communities. Amazing. It is, a, it is amazing. The whole, 
the way the story's unwound. And like you say, with the moderator piece where they're going down the chain of moderators, because they're basically saying to the moderators, well, you're not doing your job. Your job is to keep keep the Reddit open and, and you know, enforce the rules. And obviously they're seen to not do it, but it it's amazing how different management's being to the community and how naive they're being and not listening at all to a, you know, a website that is born out of the community. So I, I find it really really mystifying how they've ended up like this so i just i don't know find it bonkers that they're trying to monetize something and destroy it in equal measures again see twitter yeah and and meta and facebook to a certain degree as well as we've got our users we're going to build the walls now no matter how egregious the users find it or other use or apis or any of the things that are part of it. this is ours it belongs to us you may add content and we're nothing without you but it's still ours and we're just going to treat it we want to do. And that, all that does is annoy your most loyal users who go off and look for the next thing. It, there was another fascinating related story to this that Meta have apparently been trying to meet with some of the owners of some Mastodon servers to start potentially making a Facebook endpoint into Mastodon and the Fediverse. And that has been met with some very savage pushback on on, I don't think that the the people who, who wrote the original Mastodon server Mastodon social had agreed to meet with them, but the very rumor that they might be interacting with them has absolutely caused a bit of a storm across Mastodon, and you could understand why. Meta are a great example of a company with a long view. We'll just gradually change this. We'll boil the frog, and in five years or ten years, we'll probably own it. It will be ours, and. I, I look at Reddit and I think, is this a similar sort of thing? We're going to go through the pain now. We'll lose some people, but most people don't care. All they want to do is come back at, come back and look at the cute pictures of cats or whatever it is that they're in that subreddit for. So we'll lose the most vociferous people. Other people will hear about us and come and check out this Reddit thing that's gone dark and has pictures of John Oliver. And we'll, you know, we'll come out ahead and we'll only be able to show our advertising and we'll only have our API the way we want it. And in the end, we might be a bit smaller, we might be a bit less vocal, but we'll win. And I just I think there is a longer term view from people like Zuckerberg and Huffman, who's the CEO of of Reddit, and all these people. Yeah, I just I don't like the way they're doing it and why they're doing it so quickly. I don't understand why they're giving people thirty days to get this done, and they're just crippling it. But I do wonder how many people will actually vote with their feet and go elsewhere. You know, will, will that happen? Will we have another big exodus to Mastodon and do you end up then with a fragmented community where half stay on Reddit and half go to the next new thing? Don't know. But I'm really cheesed off with it. Yeah, I agree. And the internet's a very different place than it was when, well, back when I used to dial up and connect to it through the various online, you know, services that I did. I think the sort of freedom element and the expectation that everything is, is it's your right as a user to be able to surf where you want, look at the code of any website, do whatever you want, is drastically different as it's been commercialized and increasing capitalization of it. And I wonder how much of it is in the attitude that Tim Berners-Lee thought it was going to be when he started. It's an amazing thing and it has been the most amazing tool. And I think we're at a tipping point in some ways you know, for it just becoming an entirely an entirely capitalistic function of companies as opposed to a, a, a series of interconnected things that actually brought benefit and was a communication tool and was an amazing medium for creativity and all the things that the internet has brought us. We seem to be sort of about to enter a very dark time there. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think we are going into a dark time, but it's interesting though, and I was just thinking about this today, that YouTube is owned by one of the biggest corporations but it has done a reasonable job of keeping the community going. I know they've had their controversies in the past, but never as bad as this. And yet they've managed it. They've managed to 
make an ad sustained business that works. So just find it very bizarre that people are doing the Elon way and not looking at some of the other ways of doing this. And what I didn't get with the third party apps is why don't you just push the adverts out to the third party apps? If you're not getting any you know, income from them, well, why don't you make them serve ads? Surely that's the way to go. If you're serving ads everywhere else, serve them in the third party apps. Or charge them even more to the endpoint for not seeing the ads. Yeah, we'll charge them or do something. So I, f- I find it all very mystifying and I think there could have been a much better way to do this in the right way. Maybe engage with, they should have engaged with the Reddit community and go, look, we, we need to make some money. These are things we're exploring. Let's all have a conversation around it. Some of the decisions will be unpopular, but at least we're going to engage with you before just having a dictatorship and that hasn't happened. Yeah. I agree. Interesting, and we'll keep an eye on it. And in the same way we did, we did, and continue to do with Twitter. We've got a new Apple Store. Yeah, so I just thought I'd pop a couple of links in at the end, just for a bit of interest. So there's a new Apple Store in Battersea, London. I was in Battersea, London a few weeks ago. Had a look around. It is stunning. The building is definitely worth going to. So it's the old power station, London. Very famous. Got the four big chimneys on it. Very beautiful. Been very lovingly restored, and is largely a shopping centre. I didn't see where this Apple store is going to be in it. It's huge. But actually, I'd love to go and see it because it, it looks quite a cool Apple store. So maybe next time I go that way, uh, I'll pop in. But it's worth just a look at the photos. And unlike Apple stores, it actually looks very yellow and, and there's lots of wood on the walls, whereas lots of them are usually brick or white. So it just looked quite nice. And I thought they'd done a, a good job with it. I always think of Pink Floyd when I think of Battersea Power Station. I can't remember which album that was, but I know the cover. So yeah, it had a... It was the Animals album, unsurprisingly, with a peg on it. But it had a floating peg over Battersea Power Station. So I'm I'm, sh- I'm sure Dave Gilmore and band colleagues have a chuckle every time there's some large shop open inside of the Power Station. But it it is such an amazing place that they've refurbished it and restored Battersea. It does look, it looks great. And they've, they've done a really good job with it. So, so we definitely recommend. And apparently you can go up one of the towers on the lift and actually it's a viewing platform at the top. What I don't know is how much of the power station had to pull down to rebuild it to, to get the shell back but anyway look looks cool and i'm interested to see it next time I, I go that way yeah i used to quite like going to an apple store i think it became less of a special thing the longer we had them i still vividly remember going into the barcelona one which had the most amazing glass staircase so yeah i think i've, I've calmed down a bit with more pop-up ones but yeah I, I i agree with you it's definitely worth for the for the history around the building it's probably worth a look yeah, definitely. And then I've just put another link to MKBHD and he's did a video on Apple's keynotes about how, how they don't say certain words and how they don't often do comparisons. And it was just quite lighthearted, a bit of a review of the recent keynote and it's just done in a really nice way. So that, that's that. Fair enough. Media? Media. So just to reiterate what I said last week, Silo stayed pretty strong. Uh, I don't know if you've started watching it yet. I haven't. I nearly did. And then I ended up watching The Fugitive, which I've put in the links, because I don't know why, I just had a craving to watch Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. And so I went and watched The Fugitive. So apologies, I haven't seen Silo, but I, I want to watch it though, rather than just have it on in the background, if that makes sense. So I'm trying to find a moment to do that. So yeah, I watched The Fugitive from 93, and do you know what? Actually stood up pretty well. Obviously there's no mobile phones in it, but really enjoyed it. And yeah, would recommend yeah, good. I've seen that film. It's a pretty good film. Harrison Ford is good. It's based on a TV show, I want to say, or maybe an earlier film. And I think there was a sequel with, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. Wesley Snipes. Me- no, maybe. Robert Downey Jr. U.S. Marshal. 
U.S. Marshals. It was called U.S. Uh, Marshals. Yeah. So had Tommy Lee Jones reprising his role, but it had Wesley Snipes in it and Robert Downey Jr. did not do so well. But no, I just really enjoyed The Fugitive. I hadn't seen it for, I don't know, 10 years or so and just actually quite enjoyed it. It was nice to put on a, a film, nice and easy going, not lots of CGI, just a good story. And uh, yeah, quite enjoyed it. Fair enough, good. For me, a second season of Star Trek Strange New World started. I thoroughly enjoyed the last one, which they made available. You can watch the first episode of the first season for free on YouTube, I think, from Paramount+. Plus. So if you've got a burning desire, or actually even if you don't, I'd say go and watch the first episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds as it's free to do so, because it's terrific. And if you've never been a Star Trek fan, I think it's a great place to start. Okay. More, more series I've got to watch. I do need to fill the hole. So I've got the Ted Lasso hole, the Succession hole, and so maybe Star Trek and Silo could, could fill the void. Ted Lasso, you've reminded me. Did we talk about the end of Ted Lasso? I don't believe we did. I think I'd seen it and you hadn't, and then we got into WWDC. I think we probably did. So let's try and do this without giving any spoilers away. What did you think of the end of Ted Lasso? Um, I thought it was pretty good, actually. I think a little bit in the middle of the show, in the series, they got a bit lo- they lost their way. They had that episode where they had like 10 storylines all happening at once, and they were just very quick and a bit meaningless. Whereas actually, I think the end... They actually managed to wrap up quite a few points and they linked a few things back to season one, for example. And Keely walks into the dressing room and goes, are you decent? I don't think that's a spoiler. But she did that in series one. And it was quite nice that they had some of those linked backs. And for people that have watched it all the way through, I think would appreciate some of that. So for me, I thought it was a satisfying ending. And it was the same for Succession, to be fair. That week I watched both. And Succession was first and I thought it was very good. And then Ted Lasso came second and actually, I thought it was very good, but I, I was worried they weren't going to land it, if that makes sense. So that was my view. How about you? No, I I enjoyed the last two episodes a lot. I think it was a variable season. There, there was some good stuff in it, don't get me wrong, but it, I agree with you. It very much lost its way about the Amsterdam episode, I'd suggest, is where it all went a bit wrong. But thereafter, definitely the last two episodes came back very strong. I think it was a fairly middling season overall, but the quality of the last two brought it back up. And it was, I agree with you, it was a satisfying ending. I think they did a good job on that. And if we never got another Ted Lasso spin-off episode, anything like that, I think I'd be I'd be satisfied with that. They did okay. They did good. Never will be hit the heights of season one again, And but that's okay, actually. It was, it was such a high height that I think most other TV shows would have been happy with that for me. But I was very happy with the ending, and I think I'd comfortably watch it again, only skipping the the coach beard goes out in his own episode from season two. I'd, I'd sit my way through the rest of them, but uh, yeah, I, I, they did stick the landing. I'd agree. Yeah, so I'd agree with you. I think they they had a few felt like filler episodes and some storylines which didn't really need. If I'm honest, I think you're right. I think season one was the best one, but it probably came at a time when we wanted it because I think we were in pandemic mode. And so season one actually came at the right time and it is very good, very tight. And actually I think season two struggled with the beard episode. They could have dropped that. And season three had a couple of middling episodes. But like you say, it came back at the end. So I think I would agree with you. I think season three was good on the whole, but could have just been a bit tighter, I would say. I, ju- I just got the feeling they needed some really good editing and it would have, the whole thing would have been saved. It was just a bit baggy in places. Or they just didn't need to do... 11 or 12 episodes they just need to do 10 for example I just I don't know it felt like they were just padding keep them at 35 minutes that's that as soon as they start getting longer it started falling apart anyway on the whole enjoyed it it's a good Apple TV plus show it's done very well for Apple I'm I'm 90% certain we'll get some sort of spin-off of another Ted Lasso maybe more than one but we'll see there's got to be a few people in that cast pushing 
pushing because it's been their big breakthrough through for a lot of them. So I wouldn't be surprised if we get something. Definitely. This isn't, it's a non-media story as much as a media story. I said to my children, shall we go and watch the new Flash movie? And both of them, a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old, point blank refused to go and watch the new Flash movie with me. And they like superhero movies. That's not good for you, is it? Well, I, that caused me to do a bit more reading. The primary reason for not going to see it was controversy around Ezra Miller, who I hadn't realised was quite the controversial character. He is, sorry, they are, not he is. I get my pronouns right. I'd suggest go and read offline if you're a bit more interested in that. I don't think we need to bring that sort of controversy to the podcast. Other than that, it's done appallingly badly at the US box office. They only predicted to make $55 million or something like that in its three-day opening weekend. Most films make over 70 to $80 million, particularly sort of AAA, big, big summer blockbusters like this. It made less than $20 million, apparently, in its three-day opening weekend. So it's been a complete disaster for DC, for James Gunn, for the cast. It's, it's not going well. Doesn't sound good. I don't know anything about this individual, so I'm going to have to go and have a look. So I'll go and read that afterwards. But I'm not a big superheroes fan. I think there's just been too many of them and I missed too many of them. And I just wait for them to now come on Disney. I, th- I think that's fine. This will not come to Disney because it's DC and not Marvel. So that's just something to keep in mind. The Flash is a DC character, not a Marvel one. Oh, but it will come to something. It'll come to something. Probably Amazon. I think Man of Steel and the, and the rest came to Amazon. It's just how badly did DC and this expanded universe go wrong? If you went from Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight films, and then the next one was you know Batman Begins, not Batman Begins, but Batman ver- Superman, Man of Steel, uh, Batman versus Superman, the Justice League, the Flash. All these things have not gone well. There's been the odd higher point, but if you remember, I gave up on on Black Adam after five minutes. And this just looks like another one in that pathway. With the exception of the Suicide Squad, which is terrific, the rest have been deeply average or dreadful. Yeah, DC don't have a great batting average, do they, of looking after their properties, whereas Marvel have turfed out a lot of films and generally have maintained a really good batting average. Probably too many at this point. I will say one of the things that made me interested, the reason I wanted to see the Flash film, was they got Michael Keaton's Batman back again. If you remember back from the from those days, he was the Batman that sort of kind of brought it all back. And I really liked his take on Batman. Yeah, no, I liked him too. And that's the Batman, first Batman I remember. Yep, him and Jack Nicholson, you know, in, in, in a Tim Burton show that was really quite good, actually. And even the first two were good with Danny DeVito as the Penguin. So I was excited to see him reprise the role as an older Batman. But everything else around it, I'll wait for the video and maybe I'll get more through than five minutes or the streaming service. I'll get through more than five minutes of it, but we'll see. But yeah, controversy around Ezra Miller, they have not helped us. So you didn't even go and see it on your own then? No, I'm not sitting in the cinema by myself. It's not like you talk to anybody when you're in the cinema. I know that, but it's a bit sad to sit by yourself in cinema. And for the sound of it, I'd be the only person on the screening anyway. So <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so you're going to wait for it to come out. I'll wait for it to come out on some sort of streaming thing. Okay, so finally, look, I did watch something. I watched the Grand Tour Euro Crash, which is Clarkson, May and Hammond doing another thing in Europe. I didn't even know this was coming. I've watched it. It was really disappointing. I think James May just ends up on his own in a slow car and it was just all the same gags we've all seen before. So yeah, they had some funny moments, but on the whole, it's just nothing new. And I think they've got a very, they had a very good format from a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. They haven't done anything to really change it or to do something different, and it's a bit disappointing. I've also watched it. Ooh, interesting. What did you think? I didn't mind it. 
Was it just comfortable? It was exactly what I thought it was going to be. That's fair. Uh, and I, that's okay. I mean, I thought the last one, the Scandi flick, was funnier. Also, slightly, the risk was higher when James May crashed the car into the wall. That, while shocking, kind of made it, kind of made the show, I thought. It definitely helped. I, I, I agree with you. I, I could see why you'd be disappointed. For me, the star of this, and it doesn't always come through on Grand Tour or Top Gear things, was the countries they went through. I've now got a burning desire to go to yeah, Krakow, for example. Krakow, I should say. I'd quite like to see Gdansk. You know, there, 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 are, there were elements within that. Lake Bled looked incredible. It did look amazing. So, I agree with you. As a holiday show, fantastic. But as a funny car show, very disappointing. Yeah, I, I do understand. And let's face it, the last couple of seasons of the Grand Tour have been very up and down. The one where they went to Scotland and then to that American sort of place near you, I think have been deeply, dis- was a terrible one. But then other ones have been slightly better. I thought Carnage Artois was an awful lot better. That was a lot better and I enjoyed that one. I'm, and I met my wife at that American place. I think you said that. <laughs> did I say that on I can't remember. Yeah, you did say that on the show. I was just going to say, I think the controversy is actually getting to them a little bit now as well, that they know their shelf life is limited. I think May and Hammond have a, have a life beyond Grand Tour to a certain extent. May particularly has sort of reinvented himself as, you know, the awkward English guy like that, and particularly elderly Hugh Grant who can drive a bit, which is fine, and, may, and try and cook and do interesting things. Clarkson, I'm not sure how much of a shelf life he's got, given all of his own controversies and what he says about things. And he's got his column, I think, in The Times, he might have a column. I don't think many other people are going to have him. But, I mean, he's been cancelled pretty much. That is true. And I actually do think that May, to be fair, is probably aged the best out of the three of them. He was looking very well in it. I, I agree. I have a lot of time for James May, but the other, you know... And, and Hammond will be known for crashing things as much as anything else. But, yeah, Clarkson, I think... The, the, Amazon may continue to play, pay for Clarkson's farm, maybe, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And I did enjoy Clarkson's farm, I must say. But I think I, I think they've gone too far with Grand Tour. Was, you know, they, they should have stopped by now, I think. That, that's my view. Yep, everything gets stale in the end. Anything else for media? No, let's go into games. Games. So a couple of quick things this week. We haven't done so well on the games recently in the last few weeks, but it's, it's still worth a mention. Valve has given Steam an update, both on Windows and on Mac. It looks a lot fresher. I quite like what they've done with the interface. I don't know if you use Steam a lot, Chris. I installed Steam off the back of this, had a look at it and closed it, because I thought it looked like it did 10 years ago. Well, this is okay. It does. It has actually changed a fair bit. I, and let's face it, we've been using Steam since Counter-Strike 1.4. Is that when Steam came along? I can't remember. I've used it since it came out on the Mac. I remember that much. Yeah, we used it back in the day to play Counter-Strike at a LAN party in this very room I'm sitting in behind me. Oh, actually, when we were at university together. I, th- I want to say Counter-Strike 1.6 or 1.5 to 1.6 is when the Steam Valve client came along and you had, you had to buy Counter-Strike through it rather than the way it used to be distributed. Uh, I will bow to your superior knowledge. But as an update, it does look a little bit better. I think it has been a bit saggy really the 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 steam interface it's okay you can get your games at it and now you've got it installed on your mac you can go ahead and fire in some terminal commands and you'll be able to get it running with a with a mac porting toolkit for the games that are on there so that's not a bad thing no and when you were saying about that i thought well i'm halfway there so maybe i will give it a go i think you absolutely should so visual refresh they got one on windows as well i didn't notice quite so much on my steam deck i think the steam deck one is slightly different anyway for obvious reasons but i think it needed it yeah, but I, c- I can't really see that much difference. But then, I don't know. I haven't used it enough. It, to me, it just looks similar-ish. 
but I'm guessing they've actually just used some modern elements. What got me on the Mac, though, is it's still a round icon, whereas all the other Mac icons in my dock are, are squares with rounded corners. I think the history there is that Valve are a bit annoyed at Apple, that they really made a big push to get gaming going on the Mac. I, th- I don't know who it was that said they were going to work closely together. They brought the Source engine to the Mac. They had a big launch. Team Fortress 2 came to the Mac, Counter-Strike, Half-Life, Portal. They made a huge effort to get it, and then Apple, after promising they were going to help them out with gaming, didn't. So Valve's response to that also became a bit half-hearted, that they still support the games they have there. There's still Mac games available to buy there. But I think they felt a bit let down by Apple. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, we've discussed it before, haven't we? Apple have... Not, not been that great at, yeah, making games work. There's a, there's a rumour that one of the executives hates games and wants nothing to do with them on the platform, and you, maybe you can see that kind of thing coming through. They need, to, they need to just do general compute platforms irrelative of people's preference. That's what Apple do, and that's why I was pleased with the Vision OS announcement, because it was a general computing platform, and that's Apple at its best. I agree. At the same time, they make processors with lots of GPU power. So if you've got lots of GPU power, you should be able to support a general computing platform and bring a game to it. Games push things forward in lots of ways. A lot of our TensorFlow's machine learning and all the rest of it are very GPU dependent. When they're sitting around doing nothing, everybody likes to kick back and relax, and they have a big gaming initiative. They even have Apple Arcade on iOS. So it's not the end of the world for them to make gaming more accessible, and I hope the game porting toolkit is a sign of that. But anyway, it's a thing. Yep, it's a thing. So speaking of things, I played a game called BattleBit. I don't know if you looked at the little YouTube videos of this. I'd encourage listeners to do it. It looks like something from at least 20 years ago, I think. It's sort of very 8-bit Roblox-looking Lego characters. But underneath the hood, it's basically Battlefield, the game I love and talk about in this uh, this podcast quite a lot. But Battlefield from years ago, the gunplay, the feeling of the game is incredible. The fact that it's made by four people and has been the fastest selling game, sorry, it's the highest played game on Steam this weekend. It supports something like 246 players on a map. It is incredible, the performance of the thing. Like I say, it's not the prettiest in the world, but you can't knock the power of it. And it's only a 1.7 gigabyte download to get it working on Windows as opposed to, I think a patch for Call of Duty is 40 to 60 gigs. Never mind the whole game. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's noticeably smaller, isn't it? Yeah, so there's two links in the show notes. One is the Steam page for it, if you want to get on it, and you have a Windows PC, or maybe you could try it on your Mac with the Game Porting Toolkit, although it does have easy anti-cheat, so that probably won't work. And then just a little write-up on PC Gamer about the best-selling game on Steam being BattleBit Remastered. There's a lot of buzz about it on YouTube. It's a lot of fun. It frustrates me. No end, I must say, the little bit of play I managed to do at the weekend, but a lot of fun. Cool. Seeing the PC Gamer logo takes me back a little bit. I used to read that magazine many years ago. Yeah. Have you got a game this week? I have put a game in, which I've not played a huge amount, but my son has. It's called Descenders. It's an oldish game. It came out on the PlayStation 4, but it was about, I don't know, six quid on the PS5. So we downloaded it, and it's just a bike game, and you do tricks and you ride downhill, basically. I think the name is really good. Descenders, fantastic name. And it's obviously all about descending hills on your pedal bike and doing tricks. And kind of reminded me of playing SSX Tricky back in the day on the PlayStation 2 of doing downhill tricks and scoring points and jumps and things. But no, my son's really enjoying it. It's nice to see him play something that isn't called Fortnite. So just one I thought I'd put in there is a cheap game, good for kids who like mountain biking. 
I think it's in the PlayStation Classic game selection. If you if you do pay for that monthly sort of expanded tier over above the two games that it's in there, you might not need to buy it. Yeah, I don't pay enough for that bit. I think you're right. And it's also an Xbox Game Pass. Yeah, it's a well-reviewed game. Lots of YouTubers and things still play it from time to time. It's meant to be a lot of fun. I think it's a good choice. Yeah, it's great fun for my nine-year-old. Not great graphics. Obviously, it's over time. But yeah, he's very much enjoyed it. Very good. No more hard drives. No more hard drives. So finally, I just put a link in. Apparently, Starfield, a new game from Bethesda, who own ID and do all the Doom games now. So I don't think they own ID, so I may have misspoken, but they do it. They, they own the Doom IP. Their new game, Starfield, will require an SSD and not a spinning hard drive, apparently, when it launches in September. So I didn't know that you could specify the type of hard drive people want, and I don't know how you enforce that, but just interesting uh, that, that came across. I'm surprised everybody's not on SSDs already. No, I think you can enforce that. If you are if you look for a sort of minimum seek time for your game or how quickly you can stream th- something off a drive, you'd be able to spot it was spinning rust very quickly. Okay, fair enough. And also, it doesn't surprise me that this, if anything, it surprises me it's taken so long that this is a thing. If you built a, a gaming rig capable of playing something like Starfield, which does look really impressive, you've got to admit, you've absolutely got a, a, you know, a PCIe 4 or 5 SSD stuck in your, in, in your gaming PC. Because it's just not going to cuss it otherwise. It's been a long time since you know a hard drive has actually been an optimal choice for a gamer. And even then, you would be would have been buying the more expensive ten thousand RPM hard drives or something like that, fourteen thousand RPM hard drive to get the best possible performance for your frames per second. So I I think this has been long time long time coming. Yeah, maybe you're right. I I guess I'm a little detached from it. I've been on SSDs for ages, but perhaps there are still some people out there. And I guess if you've got a library of games, it's cheaper to offload them onto fast spinning discs, I guess. But hopefully we're getting past that point now. I don't know. The thought of Slay the Spire taking so, so long for the hard drive to spin up to get it running, it give it, whoa, I don't like the sound of that at all. <laughs> anyway, moving on then. Should we get into the show? And I think this week we just can talk a little bit about some follow-up from WWDC. It has been quite a quiet week. Well, unsurprisingly, it's been a quiet week. I think developers have been digesting the betas and thinking about how they're going to report their things to Vision Notes. It's not Reality OS, nearly, or is it Vision, no, it's Vision, Vision OS? <laughs> I was right the first time. I shouldn't analyze myself. I thought this was an interesting article by Jason Snell and Dan Murren, actually, just talking about the features in Apple OS they want right now. And I think we've talked about some of these in passing, but it's really interesting in such a minor OS update how there's a few things that, our starting credit, really, it's what you want to have in, in an operating system or a feature within that. So these fit, these features to talk about in six colors, I thought we could take a, a spin through, really, and just say, you know, how important are they to the average person? Jason and Dan are, were journalists. Jason worked for Macworld, was the editor of Macworld for quite, for quite a while, actually. So I think his... He's got a very good eye for what the average consumer wants, and then he's got his little bit off to the side that is obviously his thing that he wants to happen. Also, somebody else can follow on Apple Music, actually, if you want to see what Jason listens to, and well worth listening to the Upgrade podcast. So the first thing mentioned in this is links with, between Notes and Apple Notes. Is this something you desperately want in your Apple Notes? So, one, I will second what you said about Jason. He's actually a really interesting guy to follow and knows a surprising amount about English culture considering he lives in San Francisco. But just a super interesting guy to listen to on a podcast or read his articles. And I think you're right, he does get a good balance between tech enthusiasts that he is and knowing what the average consumer wants. Back to linking Apple Notes. I don't do a lot of note-taking on my devices. I largely write coffee lists when I'm in a shop and I'm going to go and get a round of drinks in for everybody or we're, we're buying dinner or whatever it may be. So I'm not a big note taker. We've talked about it before. I still use an 
I've got a pencil and a notepad in front of me. That's my preferred method. So I think this is good. I'm glad Apple are doing it. It's good they're trying to keep up with the Joneses, I guess, is the right right terminology there. What do you think? Yeah, it's table stakes. Notes, all the big note-taking things like Obsidian have supported this for a while. Like Obsidian have supported this for a while. And as I embed myself ever deeper in Notion, and I like more and more things about it, one of the things I've really come to appreciate about Notion is the ability to update and embed live features within the note I'm working on. So let's say there's a piece of text describing your website, your service, a piece of research to do or something that you refer to all the time. You can embed that immediately within the note that you're working on now. So you're not even just linking off to that note. It will give you a live embedded block between the, in the thing you're working on, which means if you change that, that thing, it gets updated everywhere which is just a phenomenal little feature. It's really desirable. I'm finding, you know, so something like that level of live linking in something is a really powerful feature to expose your users to. Yeah, and I'm assuming Apple have done it in a good way and is intuitive because Apple do have form, I think, for either doing something really intuitive and obvious and hiding something that nobody will ever notice. So it'll be interesting to see the detail. Yeah, so this is it. I'm not running the beta of Sonoma. You are. You could potentially test this. I don't actually know if it's live yet, but this is the first thing that they say is sort of an interesting thing to come to. The second thing they say they're really looking forward to happening is passkeys, which we've talked about in this podcast before now. So, yeah, I think I'm excited to see passkeys come as well. Yeah, I'm interested in passkeys. I don't think I know technically enough about them yet, but I've not seen them offered anywhere. For me, I'm keen though, because I use 1Password. I'm not planning to move away from 1Password. I quite like the app. So I'm curious to see when passkeys will become more prevalent and when will they be available to the wider world and not just tech people like you and I. And I'm surprised Apple haven't done anything like like on their developer website or you know anything like that. We still seem very hard-baked on the Apple password still. Yeah. And of course, the crucial thing is not only passkeys, but the ability to now share passkeys within the operating system. So if you have got a family member you want to share your passkey to your Netflix account on, not the Netflix like you're doing that, you've got that facility to do so. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that because there are some things I need to share with my wife for logging into to our joint PayPal account or eBay account or whatever it may be where you can't sell it for family so easily. I'm curious to know what that's going to look like. The next one I need to ask you about, have you noticed this yet? Apparently, with the next version of the Apple Studio Display webcam, you can now address panning and zooming, and as we're talking, Chris has just shown me the top of his head. So, it works. I don't know. You can do different things with it. Oh, you can adjust the blur on the background there. Yeah. I can turn on a studio light. So, I know that some people have had issues with the refresh rate of the camera. So, if you've got bulbs that operate at a particular frequency, you can actually see the flicker. When you're looking at, oh my gosh, there's all sorts of effects and things as well that Chris is showing me as we go through here. So an answer to this question, oh my God, yes, this is a thing that works. If you want to sit and be distracted by somebody with lasers behind them, you can now do that straight into it. And and fireworks too, although your frame rate has not gone well with that, i got to say. It is kind of cool that you, so you can do reactions, basically. You can adjust the studio light, you can adjust the blur behind you, but I can't seem to change the crop mode. So having done all those, can you do the gestures? So if you hold a, you know, you, no, but if you if you hold up a heart or a thumbs up, they'll do the thumbs up for you. Doesn't look like it. So that's the thing you're meant to be able to do. Yeah, that doesn't work yet. <laughs> yeah, it does. Okay. So again, we said at the top of the show, we're using Zoom to record this. Chris had just has these features built in to the, even though he's using Zoom on a beta, they, when he gave me two thumbs up there, 
he actually got a bunch of fireworks behind him. So that sort of presenter building these things in actually works just with an embedded, non-updated version of the Zoom app. So that's quite impressive. I don't think it's particularly life-changing, i got to say. I don't think I'd have this in my top six list of things that I want to see in the next version of Apple operating systems. But it's a nice feature. No, I'd agree with that. I think it looks like they are starting to use maybe some of the smarts in the camera and why they've got iOS, in essence, built into my monitor. It's probably good to see them. Well, what are the advantages of doing that? I did have to install an update to make this work, and I think I'm going to get these controls on my iPad as well. So I think it's good in the whole that they're doing it. Like you say, the reactions I'm less fussed about. I'd rather just have better picture quality, please. So the next one is a FaceTime for television. This is the ability to use continuity camera from your phone on your Apple TV. And we talked about this last week, I think. This was a feature that should have been there during the pandemic. It would have been massively useful for people with Apple TVs. Given our quality issues of FaceTime, I'm, I'm going to step back from that slightly, maybe. But uh, I think it's something that should have happened when they, when they, you know, three years ago, frankly. It's a bit late to the party. It is a bit late to the party, but I guess what's good here, though, is assuming I could use it with Teams, you know, I could use my big TV in my shed here if I was doing a conference call, wanted to sit on my sofa rather than stand at my desk. It gives you more options, doesn't it? So I quite like the idea of it. But Apple need to do a second camera that you can buy rather than using your phone for continuity camera because it's a very expensive way of doing it. I don't know that I agree with that. I think most people have a half-decent camera on their iPhones now. The kind of people who have an Apple TV will have a decent iPhone with them as well, or they've certainly got a cupboard full of at least one old one that they keep around in the background. I think it's actually not a bad way of providing a bit of functionality where, let's face it, Sony, Meta, others have tried to produce a camera for the living room, and none of them have taken off. What they might need to do is market a stand that works well with an iPhone that maybe charges it at the same time. That would be a better place for them to get into this rather than somewhere else. But I, I think this is a nice but not necessary thing. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think I'm more meant with the phone, though. You may want to use it while you're in a meeting or on a call rather than just have it locked away, being the cameras we were talking about last week when you can't interact with it. Yeah, it's a fair point. Maybe they need to mirror it up on your screen while you're talking to them. And then the last one is just the improvements to autocorrect, which I am beginning to notice a bit more on messages, certainly on messages on, on the phone, but not everywhere else yet. So I think it's very developer-focused that we're going to get our ducking autocorrect sorted out. Yeah, they need to do something with the text piece, and they've done it. So I think it seems good to me from what I've seen, and we talked about it at the top of the show, didn't we? We did. Moving on, a couple of minor points that Chris missed. AirPods Pro 2 are getting some new features. So they did touch on this, but I think I didn't realise we are getting so many features. So the AirPods Pro 2 that came out last September, October time, I think you bought a pair, I've got a pair. They're very good. But we're going to have things like being able to mute and unmute now, whereas before you could pause and stop, but you couldn't just mute or unmute. So it's interesting they're going to do that. So when you're on the phone, you'll be able to mute yourself, which is good. They've then got another feature called conversation awareness, which I did think we talked about a little bit. But actually, if somebody's trying to talk to you, and you've got the AirPods in, it will beam that audio through to you. And then we did talk, I think, about adaptive audio a little bit in that, you know, if if there was a tannoy, you would hear it, but if there was somebody drilling a hole in the road, you wouldn't hear it kind of thing if you had noise cancellation on. So it sounds like it's doing some really good features, and it's unlike Apple to bring those to an old older piece of hardware. Normally, they would have saved those for their next, next version. So I'm going to assume that the AirPods Pro 2 are sticking around for a little while. I wouldn't be surprised if they changed the case to USB-C at some point, but I just always encourage them to get some really good features, and it's for free. So it's a good way of breathing life into an existing product 
product, I think. But as we did talk about, none of this is coming to the AirPods Max I'm currently wearing, which is a shame because they are meant to be the flagship ones, but obviously a very different product and I'm guessing there's older technology in it. Age-wise, it's exactly why I'm thinking they haven't brought this forward. The, the, you know, the AirPods Pro 2 are newer than the AirPods Max. There's obviously a lot more they can do with them. I mean, if you remember, they were talking before they released the AirPods Pro 2 that actually they might have heart rate and temperature sensors built onto them to improve the health stuff as well. So unlocking a bit more of the hardware that's in the AirPods Pro 2 is useful. I think it's nice for people that have just dropped 220 quid or whatever your prods pro 2 cost now to get those extra hardware features and software features without stiffing them to upgrade to three like six months later or a year later or even two years later airpods pro hung around for quite a while before they updated them and it, i think it's probably an encouraging sign for your headphones that there is a newer model coming that supports some more of the things so maybe they are about to charge you 600 quid for another set of headphones which may or may not be a good thing but hopefully that's a good sign that there's something better coming for you yeah, I think I'm mixed on it. I love my AirPods Max. I was nearly got that. I always want to say Pro Max. I love them. They're fantastic. I don't really want to go and buy another pair because I'm very happy with them. But I know as soon as they bring out another pair, I'll probably want them. Yeah. No, it's a fair thought. Scanning QR code. Yeah, just before we go into that, I was going to say, actually, I wonder if they're improving the AirPods Pro 2 because they were showing those with the Vision headset at WWDC. So I wonder whether they want to invest in those and, and that because they may well be... A, you know, people buying a Vision Pro will need to get the latest AirPods to run properly with it. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, that's not for at least a year, is it? We're not going to be seeing Vision Pro headsets kicking around for at least a year. So true. they've got time. That is true. Yeah, I did just put knowing about QR codes. So apparently in iOS 17, they are going to improve QR codes. So when you scan them, the little bit doesn't move around the screen and it just stays fixed at the bottom. What a quality of life improvement. That's all I wanted to say on that one. Yeah, it works now. Okay, I must try that. I've seen it this weekend. I've seen it. But I just can't believe it's taken that long for that just to get sorted because it was so frustrating. Like it would move as because obviously you don't hold the camera that still. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a pain. Long time coming. All the way through lockdown and COVID. We were all scanning QR codes so frequently, you know, checking into places and all the rest of it. What a nice little quality of life improvement. And this is what this OS cycle is, isn't it? There's lots of little improvements. So it's all good. Yeah. Moving on, app of the week, very simple, very niche. I'm going to recommend Audio Hijack, not called Pro anymore, just Audio Hijack. So it's what we use to record a podcast on on my end. I Both audio streams can be, go into one app. I keep track of mic loudness and I can have mutes and I can denoise things. And it's a hugely powerful app. It's like audio plumbing for your Mac, only runs on a Mac. You can have as many streams as you want. If you want to route one thing in here and out there to a particularly weird bit of hardware you've plugged in or anything, it just works extremely well. You've got a huge amount of functionality and controllability with it. You can use it as a recording thing. They're building in more things like automation. If you're into automation support, where you can fire off an automation to do something and it will actually run JavaScript or Apple script in the background to do things with your recording. So you have a workflow, you can build that into it. It supports external hardware devices like Stream Decks, which I don't have. I can barely cope with the keyboards I've got, so I don't need another hardware device from that point of view. But it's enabled us to do the podcast. I've used it in lots and lots of ways. It's just a fantastic bit of software. It's not cheap, but if you are looking for a means to record a podcast or route from one end of your Mac to another in some obscure way, it's Audio Glue, and it's just a terrific bit of software from Rogue Maybe I'd recommend it. Audio Hijack. 
So I just went to download this while you were talking. I downloaded it, I ran it, and it said, you can't run it because you're running a new OS that we don't support yet. So they are quite good at stopping you running a new OS because they haven't had time to test it yet. And obviously people rely on this for their work. So I would like to try it out, actually, because I hate the Audacity icon that I currently use for the Audacity app to record my end. So I will try this out as soon as they make it compatible with Sonoma Beta that I'm running now. But I admire them for stopping you to install it because I think people very quickly install the betas and then complain that the apps haven't been updated but we get them at the same time the developers get them so I think it does make sense yeah they used to get a lot of flack for allowing people to do it and then the app would have problems and they'd get the blame and not Apple for some weird API and it is such a low level app within the operating system that you've got to be very careful for the way like I talked about before system integrity protection and all that kind of stuff you've got to do to get it working properly and the thought they've done and they've actually worked with Apple and as, as a way to do that so they're good developers they make great software i'm quite happy with them and yes i haven't upgraded my mac maybe if i had gone to the beta then we'd both be recording on audacity right now so i'm glad that i didn't that's fair enough moving on to the thing of the week i've gone with the iphone stand that i purchased some random one on amazon but it's a magsafe one and it's quite cool it just clips on the back of your phone and i just thought it would be really helpful like when i'm on the train on wednesday and it had some money off it when i bought it was only about 10 pounds but it's quite a neat little stand and it just uses the magnets on the back of the phone so you can just stand your phone up. I don't have a case on my phone and I just thought it would be quite neat when I'm on the train but also for me when I'm doing video calls and I haven't got my iPad with me and I'm normally trying to wedge the phone on something and it falls over and I just thought it was quite a cool cool little stand. It looks like a pop socket. It, I don't have it on there the whole time. It's not there now. It's just more chuck it in the bag when I'm you know out and about going to a meeting i can just pop my phone up on the desk and i've got a conference device so that, that was all i wouldn't carry it on it all the time and it does make a great fidget toy i must say <laughs> fair enough no it looks quite cool i quite like the color it's an available in a variety of colors to match the pro phones from the looks of things yeah i've got the silver one because i've got the silver silver phone and I thought it's fairly generic color in case i change my phone in the future fair enough good stuff I think that's a show, Chris. That's a show. So if anyone wants to get into contact, you can reach us on Mastodon. Rod is at g5maniac at mastodon.scot and I am at underscore cjp at mastodon.social and you can email us at waitfromsleep at protonmail.com Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rod. <laughs>